I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Andrew Eason. He's a young millennial with a message about end of life that just happens to be delivered as a screenplay. The movie? Youth in Oregon. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. So first of all, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day. I really have enjoyed watching Youth in Oregon. You are the screenwriter behind this. And when we talked earlier, you told me that this came from a personal experience that you lived through. That is true. Yeah. My grandfather lived to be 104 years old, great health, great genes, a very lucky guy. And around the age of 100, he started this kind of lament, I wish I was in Oregon so I could die. And he was kind of half serious, half kidding. And my father, his son-in-law, also half serious, half kidding. They had this kind of tense father-in-law, son-in-law relationship. It was like, you know what? I'll drive you. Let's get in the car and go. And that's where the true story starts and stops. There was never a trip to Oregon. My grandfather died of natural causes at 104. Um, but that idea was there. And I think my grandfather, who you know, even at the old age of 100, was pretty aware of current events. He was very burst in what was going on in Oregon since the mid-90s. So from a pretty young age, I was also aware. So tell me what's going on in Oregon. Oregon is the first state in the U.S. to legalize euthanasia. So basically, if you're someone who's terminally ill and you have six months or less to live as deemed by a physician, you can get a prescription for barbiturates and take them or not take them. It's just kind of an option out. Um, so you kind of have at least, at the very least, the control. And from my understanding, and you can speak to this probably better than I can, a lot of people have obtained the meds, not that many people have gone through with it, but it's just an option that's out there. And it's spread since. Oregon is the first, but now what is it, six states, seven states? It's, it's spreading. Yeah, it's six or seven as of right now. But you're an East Coast boy. I am. And your, your father was a physician. Both father and grandfather. So you, we've talked about this whole death and dying thing since you were very, very young because you're an only child and your parents were a little bit older. I was, I'm a neurotic only child, less neurotic than I was, but at a very young age, before they were talking about death and dignity, I was a little 10-year-old lying awake at night obsessing about death. So it's definitely, I think being Jewish only child of older parents, it's kind of natural, it comes to the territory. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you now live in Los Angeles. That's correct. You, you wrote a screenplay. Talk to me about how a screenplay about driving someone across the United States to Oregon happened. I mean, how it, it doesn't even sound interesting, but yet I've seen it several times and it is hilarious. Um, I mean, I think it happens. I, I wrote it on the East Coast. I took it out on the East Coast as a totally unknown writer, which is a kind of a whole other conversation. But, you know, it happens over time. I think there were kernels of truth there and kernels of humor that kind of eventually grew over time that attracted some people to it. And I got lucky and got in the right people's hands. But I think one thing you're hitting on, yeah, there's a lot of road trip movies out there. Um, but road trip aside, everybody dies. And I think that universality of death, of the imminence of that and of wanting control, even though, you know, it's still not on the forefront of a lot of people's minds, especially younger people, it's there in the back. And I think that 
over time and reworking the script and taking it out there. And over time, you know, it's kind of like a snowball effect. Not everyone who read it loved it. Not everyone. And a lot of people said, this is not commercial at all. And it really isn't that commercial. So God bless indie film. But over time, enough people got to think about it, got to read it, and it changed and matured like the scripts do. Um, but he was given enough chance to breathe and live and got to see the light of day, which I feel very, very lucky for. And your humor throughout this entire movie, um, the writing it must have taken to look at a family through the eyes. Um, I saw my family. Mm-hmm. So where did you find that humor? I think for me, that's what drew me to writing initially, writing broadly, writing screenplays. I'm not a stand-up, but I, you know, I like humor and my disposition and, you know, gone through life and humor's always been my first line of defense and, you know, kind of actually happened after Youth and Oregon is written, but my father, who this is partially based on, um, got brain cancer and died. And it was a long, and he was a neurologist, so really ironic and really painful. And certainly dealing with that period of three years or so, humor was absolutely crucial. Um, so as a coping mechanism, first and foremost, and secondarily, if you want to tell a dark story, you can tell it dark 360 degrees or you can add a little humor and make it a lot more palatable. And that's really with Youth in Oregon what I was hoping to do. I didn't want to take the foot off the gas in terms of the reality of death and of you know being terminally ill and how dark and hopeless that can feel. But I wanted to make it you know enjoyable in certain moments to kind of intake that, ingest that story. And I think humor was really crucial for that. Well, there's one scene that was really funny. It's when the grandfather or the father is standing on its 80th birthday and announces that he wants to go to Oregon and die. And we're going to listen to a clip right now. Right. Estelle, you know I love you. I love you very much. I love everybody at this table very much. Well, not you. I don't know you. (laughs) I've been on this earth for 80 years. And uh, if I do say so myself, I've been a very fortunate guy. I, I, I made something of my life. I made something. I made something for myself. We're here tonight to celebrate my life. Just get one shot at this, you know. I think you just gotta take the bad with the good. And, uh,. I've become a burden to this family. Oh, Daddy. And I've become a burden to myself. And one way or another, I think that's got to end. So with that in mind, and after giving this a lot of thought, I would like to make an announcement. I want to die. What? Jeez, Dad, stop it. It's my birthday, honey. I can say what I want. Go on, honey. Would you pass the bread, please? Now, I love this scene because the first thing out of his wife's mouth after he announces that he wants to go to Oregon and die is pass the bread. Like, it it was, no one skipped a beat. One person's like, Dad, come on, pass the bread. I mean, where did this scene come from? I mean, that's... that's actually pretty close to the truth. I mean, there was a period of a year or two where my grandfather would always be talking about this and it's kind of, you don't really have time to get them into a film, but past the bread, it kind of says, we've heard this before. (laughs) Seriously, (laughs) the past the goddamn bread. And that was really true. I mean, there was never everyone saying past the bread, 
but it was always all right. We've heard this. Okay, no, let's not. Let's have one dinner where we don't talk about your amorphous, maybe real desire to die. Um, so that's where that came from, and I think it's really nice that you hear the you know this patriarch say something so dark and painful, and right away it's humor and it's dismissal and it's a coping mechanism. It's denial with his family too. Well, and I tell you, the way it was shot was just enhances the humor of that moment. So tell me, what did you want to accomplish by telling the story? I mean, certainly when I set out, and even in the end product, I wasn't really trying to speak to the death of dignity laws. And I really, in earlier drafts, even more so than the, the final version, it really was almost neutral. It's not, this isn't a movie about whether or not death of dignity is a good thing. Personally, I think it's a great thing, but this is more about one unique family's dealing with it. And more importantly than them dealing with death of dignity, it was dealing with a lifetime of relationships, of mistakes, of burned bridges. It was really about a story of coming to terms with something before you die with the unique twist that, oh, in this version of that story, the person has full control conceivably of when they die. You know, it's a tale as old as time talking about what you want to get in order before you die. But death of dignity kind of gives you a new sort of control over that. And that's what I wanted to explain. Well, you know, this subject, especially in the medical culture, no one wants to talk about dying, death. Um, yeah. in, in America, we avoid it like no other subject I've ever seen. But even though we're all going to be faced one day with our own uh, or experience someone we love dying, but you're telling the story. And why? I mean, you're, you're young. Why were you so obsessed with death at such a young age? I don't know. I, you know. I don't. I don't really know. I mean, certainly there were conversations I had with, with my parents. I think I remember. I can trace back to my peak neur- neuroses was like around age ten, and I'm not sure why that was. But one thing that happened during that time was one of my parents' friends, another doctor, got pancreatic cancer and died, and he didn't have a lot of family. And my dad spent a lot of time with him. You know, kind of did his did did him a solid and would visit him and take him food, and I would go with him. And I wouldn't say I was bereft because I probably hung out with this man a couple times, you know, 10, 20 times. I liked him, but I was 10. He was a lot older. But I just remember learning about death and, and being preoccupied with it and being scared. And I remember I was so neurotic. I'd ask my parents to promise me they wouldn't die when they go out and leave for about a year after he died. So, I mean, again, <laughs> I've come a long way, but, you know. I love that you you just casually talk about it. Just like, right. you know, yeah, it was neurotic about it i was really because i was also an only child my parents waited to have me till they were a little older and i think i'm not sure how consciously i understood what that meant at a young age but on some level i definitely didn't know what that meant. it meant that most likely my parents would die before my peers parents and that was just on some level shape or form you know bouncing around my head how did the cast deal with this subject on the because you were on the set every day yeah um, I mean, thankfully, I think the director, Joel David Moore, did a great job in connecting with them beforehand. And I know some of the cast, specifically Franklin Angela and Christina Applegate, had super personal connections in varying forms to the subject matter. I think Frank has a brother who's kind of on his, you know, on his last legs and is pretty unhealthy and you know, having some health issues. And I think he really went there a lot with that. There's actually a scene two thirds of the way through the movie where they're stopped at this bird aviary in uh, Wyoming. And Frank's character, Raymond, is talking to his son-in-law, Brian, kind of being the most open and vulnerable about his position, about why he's potentially pursuing this and why he wants to die. And and Frank's character, Ray, starts talking about some friends he had who had a stroke. And in the movie, in the final version, Frank starts crying and says, I'm sorry, and then starts again. And realized that was actually him trying to stop the take. 
because he lost, you know, he became too real and he went to his brother and he was saying, sorry, what they call pickup and he wanted to pick up from there, but it seemed so natural. He just kept it in there, but it was actually Mr. Langella going into reality and trying to come back out. That's how emotional that scene was. Oh, wow. So that was one. I mean, you know, he's, he really is. He was wonderful on set. He's an insanely talented actor. And, you know, I'm not sure you call that method or what, but certainly he went there. And I think it really, really shined through. And I think Frank really had spent so, so much time thinking about the story and the implications and his brother. Um, Christina, it was maybe less about death. And we didn't talk about it as much as Frank and I did. But I think for her, there were certainly some personal family um, things that she was pulling on as well, family relationships, frustrations with children or parents or other relatives. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of personal, intimate qualities about this film and about these stories. And I think the caliber of actors we were so lucky to get, a lot of them really connected to that. So writing this film, filming this film, being on set with the the characters and the actors going through this whole process, I mean, you're young. I mean, have you prepared for your end of life? No, I mean, you're just saying that. It's so funny. Certainly, I'm someone who who was and maybe still is preoccupied with death. But I think the other side of that coin is no one wants to think about it. Even a 31-year-old screenwriter who's made his career thus far writing about it. it it's an unpleasant thing. And it's it's a tough one. It's a bear. I, you know, I, I would probably venture to say I'm being a little irresponsible by not going there. But I also think it's very human to me. And, and I understand why other people don't want to go there either. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough one. And I think... Yeah, I mean, one thing I learned from my dad, my own father's illness, and I haven't taken this advice myself yet, but is, you know, my dad used to joke and say, if I'm ever, you know, suffering or, um, you know, not my full, don't have my full faculties, take me up back and shoot me. And he was definitely kidding, but he also definitely meant it, much of like my grandfather. And when my dad got to be really, really ill with brain cancer, he wasn't fully there and we couldn't really suss out what he wanted. And so more than euthanizing himself, I wish he just kind of, part of me wishes he had more explicitly written down his wishes. But at the same time, I learned from both him and my grandfather that your wishes change. Mm. So that's that's a tough part about it that even though I wish he had had this kind of, you know, couple pages of instructions, wouldn't really have mattered because in the moment he might have felt a different way. And yeah, it's tough. So while I'd like this, I probably should take my own advice and start planning. I also realize that what I plan now, whenever I do start to make that turn, might have changed my mind, may not be what I wish at them. And I think you bring up a very valid point that, you know, I'm healthy. If I'm diagnosed with a serious illness, my choices might change based on children, based on relationships. You just never know unless it's actually happening to you. So I, I do think it's a good point. Absolutely. But I think going back to our conversation, we're going to have the option is a great thing. I think that if you have your faculties and you're in the middle of changing your mind, you know, I think going out there and having your option with you so you don't have to wait, so you don't have to, you know, if you want to take control, you can. I think that's that's what, what made me really, if you can say it, fall in love with the death of dignity laws is that that, that option and that control, I think, is, is unbelievable and is very, you know, incredibly invaluable. So you are for it. I am for it, yes. You, I mean, and you live in a state now that honors those. It's true. You know, California was adopted because um, actually... Brittany Menard had to leave California and go to Oregon and, and her husband, um, widow now, got that law passed and is a very big advocate. So tell me, tell me why do you feel like this is an important choice to have out there? And, and in your opinion, not that I want you to be, it, you know, wondering why governments in each state has not passed it, but what is your opinion? Why are people so scared 
to pass this in other states? I don't know. I mean, it seems to fall, speaking in really broad terms, it seems to fall into the same category, you know, as abortion or gay marriage. Why would anyone, and again, this is getting a little political, I don't have to go too deep, but why would anyone take this blanket position on any of those things when maybe that's what they want, but why make it a law? So I don't know. I mean, for me, you know, maybe there's some fear of mass suicides, but I don't think so because the laws have enough in my, the euthanasia, death of dignity laws have enough in place to keep that from happening. If you look at the numbers, they're, they're by no means staggering. So I don't know. I think it's the same reason why we're backwards on a lot of social and political issues. It's just a fear and, a, you know, reluctance to change. And, you know, it's a, it's a liberty I think we all deserve. Right. And it, it gets to the point that, you know, we have to understand everybody's point of view, but it doesn't have to be my point of view. Um, and I believe that the more choices we have at end of life, the better, because you just never know. I think part of it is people, you know, going back to another thing we touched on, people are afraid to even look at death. So I think some people are so uh, uncomfortable around it, they don't even want to take the time to think, well, this is a good thing. You know, death is natural. It happens when it happens. And well, great. That's awesome. If you die in your sleep, then God bless you. But if you're sick for years and you're suffering and you're in pain, you know that you have probably seven months left, but they're going to be seven absolutely miserable months. I mean, why not? Why not have the option? Absolutely. So a little, I want to talk a little bit about the ending of the movie. Sure. Um, you know, what do you hope individuals watching this movie walk away thinking? Absolutely. I mean, I think without going into too many details, the end of the movie is less about death and dignity. And it's more about family. And I think, I mean, one of the messages of this movie and, you know, that I'd like to get out there. We all, everyone dies. We all have, you know, an end of life coming. And I think you owe it to yourself and your family to try to reconcile whatever issues, whatever open dramas, whatever feelings that are out there to the best of your ability before you die. And I think especially with euthanasia, if you're able to control that and you know when you're going out, I do think that maybe it even ups the level of obligation you have to your family if you want to. I mean, I just think that there is, you know, so many, so many issues can arise within tight familiar relationships that can sour and get ugly. And if you have the luxury of knowing when you're going to die, maybe you want to think about it even more. Well, I think it was interesting. And, you know, here's a spoiler alert. I mean, you, you don't know what happened at the end of the movie. Right. You, don't. you know, and so it made me like wonder what did happen. Mm-hmm. And you're the writer, so what happened? <laughs> like, I don't think you know because you know right. Raymond Angersall is an 80 year old uh, retired doctor with a bad heart, and he might die tomorrow. He might die on the dock after the camera, you know, pulled away. We don't know that, but I think before he does that, whether he's going to euthanize himself or whether he's going to live until he can't live any longer. I think his goal is to try to clean up some of his family mess before he makes that decision, whatever direction he goes. And I think that's really, I hate to point to one theme, but that's certainly a major theme of the movie and a, and a major point of interest that I that drew me to the subject and to the story. Well, and that, that brings up a whole nother point. What I want can be directed by family around me with their opinions, because that's what was happening in this movie is he wanted something and no one else was like, uh, you're not going to do that. And part of the part of in the movie, why? Because again, it was originally written neutral, and now, and I've always been pro, but you know, now I'm even more pro. But in the movie, for dramatic, dramatic tension, it wasn't whether or not he should euthanize himself; it was that he was concealing that. 
and that he was hiding it from his family because he thought they wouldn't let him, which I think is understandable, but also not the best way to go. And so regardless of what he decides, you know, his hand is forced and he learns that he has to bring them in on the decision because once he's dead, it's going to be impacting them and not him. And there was a lot of couple of versions of that line in the movie that felt to be too on the nose, but that's true. Once I'm dead, it's you that has to be comfortable. You're the ones that survive me. And I think that's a huge part of, of dying and, a, and of a movie like Youth in Oregon. So tell me where people can find Youth in Oregon. I know Amazon is... Amazon, iTunes are probably the, the two easiest places to find it. I believe it's still on some on demands. But I think Amazon and uh, iTunes are your two, two best spots to go. And it was a limited release in the theaters. Is it completely out of the theaters? It was in theaters for a couple weeks in February and maybe March, but not. It may come back for a brief period, but not to my knowledge right now. It was an awesome movie to watch. Um, not that the struggle was easy, but that people were talking about it and willing to have an open conversation. And the humor is... I encourage everyone to watch it, especially when you're working in the palliative care and hospice world, because family dynamics become very important as we care for individuals making these choices at end of life, for sure. But absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate your time. What's next for you? What are you? What are we working on? Working on a couple things. There's actually one pile that's in the same vein. I'm trying to do some TV stuff. One pile in the same vein as Youth in Oregon, inspired by my family again. This is more about the last year or two of my dad's life and his relationship with his home health aide, this big hulking guy from Ghana, and this kind of odd buddy relationship that transpired in the guest house of my home in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut over the course of two years. So that's one idea that I'm exploring. And I'm working on another TV pilot that's a little bit looser, inspired by a couple of friends of mine called Hanging Out, about a 33-year-old gay man coming out of the closet with his two best straight friends by his side kind of helping him embrace a life that he's been reluctant to accept for 30-something years. Well, I wish you the best. Um, Good luck to you. And thank you for sharing uh, Youth in Oregon with the world. It is a great um, movie, and I just enjoyed it. And thank you for taking the time out. Oh, thank you so much, Kimberly. It was a pleasure speaking with you. You too. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.